There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. Well, we have a terrific guest today. Evelyn Sanguinetti is a wife, a working mother of three, and an attorney by trade. The daughter of a Cuban refugee and an Ecuadorian immigrant, she grew up in humble beginnings in Florida, attending university in Florida and earning her law degree at the John Marshall Law School in Chicago. Her early private law practice focused on victims of housing discrimination, and subsequently, she was appointed as the Illinois Assistant Attorney General. She served on the Wheaton, Illinois City Council and in 2014, was elected the first Latina Lieutenant Governor in the state of Illinois, and for that matter, in the nation. Now, after serving as Lieutenant Governor for four years, she joined the Hope Fair Housing Center as Executive Director. So it's my pleasure to welcome the former Lieutenant Governor of the state of Illinois, Evelyn Sanguinetti, to It's All About Skills. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Evelyn. Now, to start off with, you're the daughter of immigrants. What are your earliest memories about the opportunities for you in the United States? Well, my earliest memory is the memory of my mom. As you mentioned, she uh, was a Cuban refugee from Fidel Castro's Cuba. And um, she was always my shero. And despite the fact that, um, you know, we were always moving from one place to the next, always one step ahead of the landlord, there was food uncertainty. My parents were teenagers. In fact, mom was 15 when she chose to have me and keep me. But that said, she was always my shiro. And she always told me, Evelyn, en este país, tú vas a subir como la espuma. Evelyn, in this country, you will rise like the foam. And mom would give me the stories about access and opportunity and how America was the best place in the whole universe because it is the only place where you could get to have nothing and make what you want out of yourself if you work hard. And so that is my earliest memory, my mother um, instilling that that fire in my belly, the knowledge that even though times are tough, if you try hard and if you work hard, anything is possible in America. Well, you certainly were successful. Describe your uh, early education and your exposure to the arts at the New World School for the Arts. Well, early education, as I told you, my parents were teenagers. Um, they met in an apartment complex when they were newly arrived. 
um, from their respective countries and I came shortly thereafter. So that kind of created the stage for what was to come. Um, with regard to education, that was a big one because access and opportunity, world-class schools, those things in, in our poorer neighborhoods were simply not available. So I remember when I started school, being disinterested and uninspired with my schools. I felt my schools were disinterested and uninspired with me. And then on top of that, I had the pressure of my family at home because they were really wanting me to start school so that I could learn English. When you're first generation like me and you learn English, you get to do things for your family, like get home and say, Bobby, the rent is due. That's what this letter says, abuelito. It's time to go to the doctor. That's what this letter says. I'll go with you. I could translate for you. But so there was that pressure at school where I really wanted to learn English, but the teachers, the system was speaking at me in English. There was no ESL back then. So I was destined to fail and I did fail. I failed the first grade. And so every time I travel, and I talk to aspiring leaders um, in high school and in grade school, I always tell them if I could do this, anyone can, because I failed the first grade and even still, I made it. But when you asked me about opportunity in grade school, I could tell you it was tough for those reasons. But um, I was given my biggest break uh, when I heard about the school called the New World School of the Arts. And it was a school where they said, you get to audition. If we believe you have talent and if we let you in, your first two years of college are free. Now college was never, never anything. I mean, finishing high school was really something that I was like, okay, I finished high school. That's, that's where I would have made it. But the chance of being able to have your first two years of college for free was a game changer for me. And that's when I told mom, I'm gonna do this. And so that was, those are my, my earliest memories, but my big chance in life came at the New World School of the Arts. Wow, and you certainly learned, uh, learned the value of failure, it sounds like. Oh yeah, and did I, and did tell, I. Tell me a little bit about your college experience before you went to law school. Well, my college experience, because I had the foundation of um, going to the New World School of the Arts, um, I was not a classically trained pianist when I auditioned for that high school. So it was at New World that I learned how to learn and that I learned who Bach was, who Mozart was, who Beethoven was, and I learned how to love the sciences. Um, one thing that I did learn though, is that I thought to myself, sitting in these classrooms and being inspired was that this must be, this must be which the rich kids get in the nice neighborhoods, because it certainly wasn't anything that I had growing up in these underserved areas. But all of a sudden, I was so heavily inspired and influenced. And I was able to, after the New World School of the Arts, go to Florida International University. And I had a repertoire behind me. And for those who are, are not uh, musicians uh, like I once was, repertoire is when you have your program of your memorized pieces, kind of like your resume to get into schools of music. Well, you have to have your memorized concert. Um, I would never have had that but for New World School of the Arts. And so 
it was a perfect transition into Florida International University. And that's where um, I got my degree in piano performance. So one thing led to the other. Well, one thing leads to the other. So what prompted you to go, choose to go to law school? <laughs> fate, fate. If you're not superstitious, now is the time to become superstitious. So I, I was finishing up my degree. I remember I had just finished playing a recital in my auditorium. I knew that I played a Scarlatti Sonata in F. And that after my concert, I went to the cafeteria at FIU and I saw all these kiosks. And I thought to myself, what are you guys doing here? What are you selling? And they said, well, we are accredited law schools seeking people at accredited universities like yours to apply for law school. And I thought it was the funniest thing because I'm a musician. So I just said, well, thanks for telling me. I'm on my way to have lunch, uh, be well. And uh, it just so happens that the person I was speaking with at one kiosk was from the John Marshall Law School. And she told me, wait, 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 wait. Don't stop, wait, wait, don't leave. You know, musicians do really good in law school. And I thought to myself, okay, now, now I'm curious because I would never see myself as an attorney in any way, shape or form, but give it to me. And so she said, okay, right now you're in a practice room six to eight hours a day for your next performance. Is that not true? Yes, it's true. And she says, and when you're done memorizing your pieces and you have your repertoire, your program, and you perform it, you perform it in front of a jury of your peers, correct? And then I said, yeah. And so she says, what do you think you're going to be doing in law school? You're going to be in the law library six to eight hours a day, sister. And when you perform, you're going to be performing in front of a jury of your peers or in front of a judge. So they are, they are very similar. And I was very curious because if there's anything that my mother ever taught me is si no tu, entonces quien? if not you, then who, you know? And she always taught me that no matter how scared I would be in a situation that I should always be ready to pounce. And so I thought to myself, I took a program and I thought to myself, you know, I could always go back to piano after I get this degree. But this law stuff seems really interesting. And I applied and the rest is history. It certainly is. Now, you had incredible skills as a pianist that you learned in, uh, in, in the, at the New World School for the Arts, as well as in, in college. Which of the primary skills do you think are most influenced by going to law school? Wow. Similarities and what, what did you, what kind of skills did you learn there other than knowledge of the law? I mean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right. So, so I will tell you this, and, and people never believe me when I say this, unless they come from a background in the, in the performing arts. But getting a degree in performance was much harder, a million times harder than getting a degree in law. And a lot of people wonder, why is that? And it's because when you're a pianist, for instance, and you practice and practice and practice for that one moment and you're on stage and you make a mistake on stage, 
the likelihood of recovery is almost zero, right? But if you're an attorney and you're delivering an argument and you're advocating for your client, if you flub up a little bit, it's okay. There is the possibility of a recovery. There's even a possibility of an appeal. You never get that when you're a performer. So taking it over to law school, I mean, was it tough? It was definitely tough. The schools that I learned in the law, it's true what that person told me uh, when I took that program that one time, right? It's true that um, my skills as an artist were completely transferable into law school. But what I did learn in, in law school was to be a leader. I learned how to advocate for people. And that's something that law school did not give me. And I learned it at the Fair Housing Legal Clinic as a law school student. I found out at the time that I was able to get a provisional license or a temporary license, they call it a 7-Eleven license, and you get to represent people while you're in law school and you get to advocate for them. And I had heard that the clinic, what they do is fight discrimination and segregation in housing. And I thought, wow, does that still happen? Could I actually have an effect? You know, can I make a difference? And so I learned how to advocate and I learned how to lead because it was at the Fair Housing Legal Clinic that I figured out that that's what makes a leader. Taking somebody that comes in telling you their story, their very hurtful story and transforming it into a win, into something good for that individual, even if that individual could never do anything to help you in return. That to me is leadership. And that's what I learned at the John Marshall Hospital. Wow, and there's such similarities between performance and law. I mean, law, as you mentioned, is performance to a large extent. To a large extent. And you know what, when I started law school, the OJ Simpson trial had just, it hadn't even started. We were watching that white Bronco on TV. And um, it was a beginning, just watching that whole trial while you're starting law school, because it really is. It's, um, it's a performance. Um, it involves a lot of advocacy and it involves real life situations that you could have an impact on. Wow. Well, now what those, um... The law school is in Chicago, John Marshall School of Law is in Chicago, and you've become a real Illinoisan and Chicagoan. But what really made you fall in love with Illinois and Chicago? Yeah, well, at the beginning, I loved Chicago because of the arts. So uh, Miami is very metropolitan, you know, it's, it's metropolitan, it's um, it's fast, it's beautiful, it's international, but um, the classical music scene, the opera, I gotta tell you, Chicago had, had, was, was at least 10 steps ahead at the time, okay? In full defense to Florida now. Um, so that's what made me fall in love at the beginning, you know, and being in the city of Chicago and uh, all the people that I ran into were primarily lawyers and I loved the arts and I loved the architecture and I loved the music and that's what um what what made me decide to not go back to Florida also too I met my husband in law school so 
that was another reason. But uh, my love affair with Illinois was not fully developed until I became Lieutenant Governor and I was able to see all 102 counties and how beautiful and how diverse Illinois really is. Yeah, wow. Now, as a, as a young lawyer in Chicago, what was your initial primary focus in terms of your law practice? So as a, as a in law school, people always thought because of my performance background, everybody always felt um, that I do really good as a lawyer. And they'd always say, oh, Evelyn is likely to study international law or something like that. And I would always joke with my classmates and say, well, I'm gonna practice paycheck law. And my classmates would be like, paycheck law? What's that? We haven't even heard of it, tell us. And then I said, honey, whatever pays is what I practice. Because we had between my husband and I, $200,000 in law school loans. So you could imagine. <laughs> so um, the first opportunity that I got um, was as an assistant attorney general. And I loved that job. I loved it. Uh, because getting started, I was able to be a prosecutor at the beginning, right? I was able to do plaintiff's work. And as you know, plaintiff's work is very different. The plaintiff has the burden of proof. And I represented people that had bosses who did not want to pay them their wages. And so those people went before the Illinois Department of Labor filed claims. And if it had to rise to a lawsuit, there I was. Huh. So yeah, so I love that. I love the fact that a lot of times you hear about lawyers getting out of law school and never making it into a courtroom for years and years. They have to go to the law library and work for partners. But the good thing about governmental practice, it was sink or swim. I was in the courtroom since day one. And then after I got experience doing plaintiff's work, I was promoted and I was in the general law division. And there I started doing federal work and defending. That's another hat that you have to wear. You gotta do defense work now in federal court. And those courtrooms are very majestic and large. And I remember when I had to give my first argument in federal court, my knees were knocking. And I was like, I never even experienced this as a performer, you know? Um, but um, what I did is defend state actors in federal lawsuits, uh, police officers, um, medical professionals that work for the state and so on. Wow. Well, you know, you were, often running as a very successful lawyer um, and were, were achieving major successes in both the, as uh, for a lawyer for plaintiffs and for, for, the, uh, for, the, for the defense. But it became, uh, you, you, you started to face another, another challenge. Um, it's public knowledge, Evelyn, Evelyn, that you were a victim of multiple sclerosis. Tell us how you were first diagnosed and how it has affected your life and how you have been so successful in meeting the challenge of MS in a very highly productive and successful career. Yeah, so multiple sclerosis, um, it changed everything, absolutely everything. Um, so I was living the American dream. I was living all those things that my mother wanted for me and my family. Uh, my husband and I were able to make a home in Wheaton, Illinois, where we were sending our children to public school. I was working, you know, we had made it. I mean, for all intents and purposes, we had made it. 
And then um, I had an accident and I had to go to the emergency room and subsequent uh, tests revealed that I had lesions in my brain. And uh, the emergency room doctor had asked me how long I've had MS and I was by myself. I wanted to go to work as soon as I got out of the ER. To me, it was a big pain to have to even go to the ER. And here I have this guy telling me I have this disease I've never even heard of. And so I left the hospital that day and I did what every person should never, ever, ever, ever do, which is look in the internet and try to find out on your own about your diagnosis, right? And of course, inevitably, I was told I would die a horrible death. So it was, um, my, my journey with multiple sclerosis has been a long one. I was um, finally, uh, well, we needed to undergo multiple tests to make sure that indeed it was multiple sclerosis. And um, I needed to have an operation. Um, I had my first MS attack and that's where I realized what people experiencing an MS attack undergo. Um, and it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I was mourning for myself and I thought that my career was over. Um, later on, um, I would go on to do bigger things, uh, but at the time I, I, thought, I thought that my life was over and I did not make it public um, that I had MS until I met Bruce Rauner. Mm -hmm. um, I felt that I'd be judged. I felt that people wouldn't give me a chance because I was allegedly sick, right? And so I masked my disease for a long while until I had to um, tell this man that was running for governor. Wow. Well, what drew you to run for Lieutenant Governor of Illinois? Well, I love helping people. So when I was mourning for myself because I, I had a mask and my husband was seeing a woman that he always admired, um, and when I was able to gain my ability to walk again after my first MS attack, it was my, my husband that asked me whether I wanted to get busy dying or whether I wanted to get busy living because I was mourning myself. Now that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> it wasn't him though. It's a quote from the Shawshank Redemption that he copied. But oh. listen, it, it did it for me. It did it for me. Um, but um, he was the one that said, turn something very painful into something good. When you're able to, to go and walk and feel comfortable about it, there's this, this position that's open now in the city of Wheaton, and you could run for city council. And so that's where it all started because of my husband. And I started going door to door and talking to my neighbors about my philosophy of government. And so it wasn't until much later um, that, that I was more stronger and I was able to go back to the practice of law and I accepted a position teaching as an adjunct professor that the student of mine, and mind you, he was one of my more unfavored students. We, him and I laugh about it. Um, but he said, there's this opportunity. I'm working for this guy named Bruce Rauner and um, he's running for governor and I think you should be lieutenant governor. Wow. And I thought that was hilarious. Number one, because what, what is a lieutenant governor? And, um, you know, number two, what, what gave this student, you know what I mean? It's, it, it was like chance. So that's, um, that's where it all started. But again, when you see an opportunity, you pounce. And that was an opportunity where, again, I was nervous, but um, I pounced. 
and I got the gig. It was the best job ever. You certainly did. I love what you said about you basically turned a negative experience, the MS thing, into a gift. And uh, it, it redirected you and made you even more determined that you, than you were before. Now, tell me a little bit about what it was like to run for lieutenant governor. What was being on a campaign like for you? It was super exciting because I, I started from very local governance. Um, and so in the Wheaton City Council, you know, you're working for your neighbors, you're trying to make life better for your neighbors, and you see the results quicker, right? If your neighbor hates a fence and he complains and you do something to get rid of that horrible fence, you see the results like that. But if you go statewide, that's a different animal. Those wheels of legislative justice work very very, very slow. So um, the two positions were very different. And I went from something very local to being second in command in the sixth largest state in the union. And so it was very exciting uh, when Bruce Rauner had announced me as his Lieutenant Governor pick, because it involved um, getting into lots of planes, making tons of public appearances, being able to give eight to 12 speeches a day in different locations. Um, and so it was very exciting. I wish I would have kept a journal, but I was just far too busy to even do that when I was running. <laughs> wow. Well, you certainly have the energy and demonstrated that you had the energy to actually do that. Now, after serving uh, Lieutenant, for Lieutenant Governor for four years, what would you consider to be the primary skills that were important for you to be successful in that role? Yeah. Well, I, I will tell you that there are two. Number one, I'm inherently nosy. I love to listen and to inquire. I don't know if it's that Cuban thing, but I love listening to people and I love sparking conversation. And um, so one of the things that, that you have to do as a leader um, is listen, listen. Um, and uh, I did it in my first year. At the moment we were elected, I knew that statutorily, lieutenant governors have to head the governor's rural affairs council. I'm a city kid from Miami <laughs> with no rural background, okay? So I needed to do a lot of listening and a lot of learning, right? So on year number one, I traveled all 102 counties to find out what made Illinois, rural Illinois tick and not tick. I was in charge of waterways. That's another statutory duty. And so I needed to tour and find out what was their biggest plight, invasive carp, previously known as Asian carp. It has since then changed and then I was also in charge of military installations not being shut down by the federal government. Again, this, these are areas that I had no background in, but as an attorney, I solve problems for a living. So I needed to make sure to listen to my constituents so I could solve those problems. Wow, and that you drew upon the skills of, uh, that you learned in the performing arts, which principally are communications. You know how to communicate with people. Well, I love people, um, but I think the whole communications thing was that um, in order to supplement my income as a student, I was a telemarketer in Spanish and in English. 
<laughs> no, that's communications. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. So after your tenure uh, as lieutenant governor, you uh, were looking at a different kind of a career and what to do next. And you joined uh, as executive director, the nonprofit organization, Hope Fair Housing Center. Tell us a little bit about that organization, uh, its missions and its challenges. Yeah. So Hope Fair Housing um, is actually located in Wheaton, Illinois, where, where I live. Um, and I found out that there was an opening and uh, I've always wanted to run a nonprofit. I wanted to end that as, as possibly the last chapter in my life. It's something I've never done. I've been a performer, I've been a lawyer, I've been able to, to um, transition and rebrand myself, but I've always thought that leading a nonprofit was the truest challenge. So I applied for this position and I've been executive director of Hope for a little over a year. We are the largest and oldest fair housing center in all of Illinois. Wow. And what we do is kind of like what I did in law school when I had my temporary license. Go figure, yep. go figure. And so we fight housing discrimination and segregation in all of its forms. We advocate for people that have Fair Housing Act violation cases. It is a place with a tremendous legacy. We were born in 1968 after the assassination of Dr. King and shortly thereafter the signing of the Fair Housing Act. So what the Fair Housing Act does is that it prohibits housing discrimination based on race, color, national origin, religion, sex, disability, and familial status. So tell me that job isn't the coolest job in the world, that when a victim calls in to say something has happened where that person was unable to achieve their American dream, which is housing, that is the truest of all American dreams, right? Housing. Yes, and so, right. And so you imagine being able to advocate for this person, calling the wrongdoers, letting them know what the law holds, advocating for them to the end, even if it takes taking it to court. So our legacy is strong. And this job, let me tell you, is keeping me super young because now I am once again a civil rights activist. Wow. And it's yeah, tell me about how circular things could be. Wow. Now, well, you, your timing couldn't have been better to face another major challenge when you took that job and so forth. And that was the challenge of trying to do all of these things that you wanted to do with the emergence of the COVID crisis and that sort of stuff. How did you handle that? Well, I've always felt that I could do just about anything and everything. And it was because of the way my mother brought me up. So technically I was hired during COVID. Um, my workforce, most of them were working remotely. And um, we needed to think quick because a lot of people, you, you know, the wrongdoers do not stop doing what they do just because there's COVID. If anything, they feel in a better position to victimize people, right? And so we needed to pivot and pivot fast. And so we started doing a lot of our stuff remotely um, and it worked out. And we started, um, even though we could not have the general public come into the office, we still did intakes. 
we still did education and outreach um, despite COVID. And we were able to help people during this very difficult time. As a matter of fact, we've been able to work with a statewide coalition fighting against source of income discrimination during COVID. And we got behind legislation that just made it past the house. All of this during COVID. So you can't, you know, you can't say COVID is happening. So it's time to take the back seat because the victims can't wait. And um, this opportunity has shown me to once again, reinvent yourself, rebrand yourself and pivot. And you certainly have done that throughout your career. And you, you are a, a, a prime example of somebody who, the former uh, superintendent at the Naval Academy, when I went there, used to say to us all the time at pep rallies, probably primarily to motivate us to win football games. She <laughs> said, you can do anything you set your mind to do and don't you forget it. That seems to me, uh, you know, that seems to me the story of Ellen Sanguinetti. Thank you. Well, I actually believe it. I actually do. Well, you've certainly done it. Now, tell me, um, how, uh, how can someone contact and support the Hope Fair Housing Center? Great question. Um, I really hope you guys uh, check us out. Look at our website, hopefair.org, H-O-P-E-F-A-I-R.org. Otherwise, our phone number is 630-690-690. 6500. Our services are free of charge. So please use us as a resource. So we are definitely very, very accessible. You could reach me at evelyn.sanguinetti at hopefair.org. Great. And that phone number again is 630 area code 690-6500. Correct. Now, Evelyn, here's a nice question looking toward the future a little bit. You are a person with unbounded energy, intelligence, confidence, and determination. So what's next in store for you? You know, there's a song I like a lot, and it's called Unwritten. And so my future is unwritten. I feel that um, I keep my options open, and you never know. Perhaps I'll go back to piano performance. Um, but the truth is that it sounds like a Martin Luther King quote, but, but it's true, which is you always have to keep moving. And I feel that that's what keeps me healthy. Um, that's what lets me say to multiple sclerosis, you're not gonna get me today. Um, and it's to always keep moving. So my future is unwritten because I'm always moving. You got it. You are unbounded energy personified, Evelyn. And uh, you are an example of you can do anything you set your mind to do. And don't Indeed. you forget it. Absolutely. Well, Evelyn, I want to wish you the most best of luck uh, wherever it takes you, both with the, with the organization you're with now and in the future. Thank and you. To, and I want to thank you so much for being our guest today on It's All About Skills. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And as for me, I'm an internationally certified career coach specializing in career management, skill development, career crises, and positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my website, charliejetcoaching.com.
So I want to thank all of you for listening today, and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills. Thank you.